Amen. All right, let's take your Bibles out. We're going to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 42, and we're covering a rather large section of Scripture. We're not going to read it all today, but we're going to cover chapters 42 through 45. So I'd recommend reading the passage in its entirety later if you have the chance. As we begin reading in Genesis chapter 42, it says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They stay there, leave poor Simeon back in incarceration back in Egypt because the father won't release Benjamin. And they stay there until they start to run out of food again. And then they go to return. Jacob tells them, you need to go back. And they said, we're not going back without Benjamin. Judah says, you can hold me responsible. And so Jacob releases Benjamin to go with them. And they go back and stand before Joseph again. And 
Joseph sends them away with food again, and he puts their money back in their bags, and he puts a silver cup back in Benjamin's bag. And so he treated them to a nice big dinner at the palace and then sends them away. And then he tells his servants, okay, now go chase them down and tell them, why did you return evil for good by stealing my cup? And they catch him and they say, what are you talking about? We haven't taken anything. They said, if you find the cup among us, you can put us to death. And, and they go through and they find Benjamin has the cup. And so now Judah is just livid because you know he's being responsible for his brother and so he goes before joseph and he says don't do this take take me let me stay here and be your servant let me stay here and bear bear the penalty let my brother benjamin go back to his father so that he doesn't die in sorrow and joseph is touched by judah you see what's happening is the opposite of what happened with joseph joseph they were willing to sell away to the slave traders even to kill to get rid of him no matter what sorrow it caused the father And I think the sorrow that they saw in their father and that they'd seen in Joseph impacted them. And Judah said, not again. Finally, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Chapter 45 says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I'll bet they were. (laughs) The one that they had sold into slavery is now second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. They're shaking in their boots. Verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You know, with going down to the cities and out to Seattle and stuff a few times lately, I was reminded of something. And that is that patience is a virtue that you admire in the person Behind you, uh, abhorring the person in front of you. <laughs> as, as I had to wake my way through traffic situations and a lot more traffic in a couple of moments than we experience here in the whole year, I was reminded that you appreciate that patience that the people allowing you in and, and dealing with your mis, missteps and mishaps and wrong turns is appreciated, but you often do not carry that same appreciation for patience when the person in front of you isn't moving as quickly as you'd like them to. You know, I find the same to be true with forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that we're always very grateful to receive. It's not always quite so easy to dispense. As people wrong us or hurt us in some way, it's difficult to be so forgiving or so understanding as we hope that other people are when we are in the need of forgiveness. And that's exactly what I find as I look at the story of Joseph. As we consider that this morning is this idea of forgiveness. In Joseph, obviously, is a a masterful story and and quite the incident that that took place where his brothers were were ready to kill him. And they decided in the long term not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery, never to be seen again. Earlier, even in this story, they refer to him as dead. They're saying, look, we're all sons of one father. There was 12 of us, but one of them's no more. He's, He's dead. Whether they're just assuming that he's dead or just the fact that he's dead to them as a family, but that's how they refer to him. 
And they said, you know what? We ignored his screams and his cries as he begged for mercy and he begged for us to not do this thing. And we just, we just ignored him and sold him into slavery. And we look at all the things that Joseph has endured. You know, all those things rightly could have been kind of attributed to those brothers. Obviously, the selling of the slavery, him being in a position of slavery in Egypt rather than being at home with his family, he could have held that against his brothers and rightly so. Even when he gets thrown into prison, he could have blamed Potiphar, but he wouldn't even have been in that position if it wasn't for his brothers, so that could have been attributed to his brothers. Even when he's sitting there and forgotten by the cupbearer and down in the pit, as he referred to it in that prison, he could have given that to the credit of his brothers too, because as I said, he would have never been in that position if his brothers hadn't sold him into that slavery. When we look at the extremes that, have, that Joseph has experienced in his life and then his brothers come in before him, and now he's in a position of power. In fact, there's nobody in position of more power except for the Pharaoh himself in the situation that he now finds himself in. And yet, he's willing to forgive. That's forgiveness. And it was permanent. Because if you skip to the very last chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, you'll find that Jacob dies. And when Jacob dies, you know what the brothers think? Uh Uh-oh. You see, Joseph's probably been being nice to us and not carrying out his vengeance on us, not getting even because of our father that would make our father upset i'll bet now that dad's gone we're in trouble and joseph comes before him again and he's he's crushed he can't believe they're thinking this way and he tells him it's not because of that look god is the one that brought me here i'm not holding anything against you guys yes you meant it for evil i know that but that's okay it's in the past it's completely forgotten it's for it's forgiven and so his forgiveness was complete well, you know what? Sometimes in our experience, we, we find it a little less easy to forgive, I think. And within the passage, as I look at Joseph, I find that there is some help in having that kind of forgiveness. In fact, two ways that God helps us to forgive. The first way is sovereignty. Sovereignty just means control. It means that God's in control. And that's the thing that we see that comes out dominantly in Joseph's life. As Joseph's brothers are before him and he has his his opportunity to take vengeance if he wants. All power is in his hands and he can do whatever he wants. And what does he do? He completely forgives them for their past wrongs against him. And why? Sovereignty of God. Joseph recognizes, look, the things that you did to me are the exact same things that God used to put me in the right place at the right time to accomplish what he needed me to do to save the world and to save you and your families, to save for you a remnant of people. And that's exactly what's on his mind. It says that when when Joseph saw his brothers, it reminded him of his dreams. And we see God in control. Because remember the dreams that God had given Joseph way back at the beginning of the story? That God gave Joseph these dreams that his uh, he would be bowed to by his family? That the sun, the moon, and the other stars, the other 11 stars would bow to his star. That the other sheaves of grain would bow to his sheaf of grain. And they recognized it as such. Even his father was like, are we really going to bow to you? And remember when the brothers sold him into slavery. As he was going away, they said, now what will happen to his dreams? Well, (laughs) now we get to see exactly what does happen to his dreams. As we look in chapter 42, in verse 6. It says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him. Go up into chapter 43. 
In verse 26, it says, And they came and they bowed down to Him to the ground. And then in chapter 44, in verse 14, it says, When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. So on at least three different occasions within this passage, it mentions that all of his brothers come in and they bow before Joseph. And you see what that is doing. Joseph remembered the sovereignty of God. He remembered the dreams that God had promised him. And so all those years while Joseph was down into Egypt in slavery, down into the dungeon in the prison, God has raised him up and now his brothers bow down to him just as the dreams told him in the beginning. And so we see the sovereignty of God. And that's what Joseph spells out to them too. He emphasizes to them, look, it's not you that brought me here. It's God. He doesn't absolve them as far as tell them that what they did was a good thing because he recognizes that their actions were evil. And that they had evil intentions in doing these things to Joseph. But he said, it was God that brought me down here. So that I would be in the right place to deliver his people, their family, and the world at that time. You know, last week we kind of started to focus on this a little bit. And remember we pointed out the fact that of all the things that were done against Joseph, God wasted none of them. Not one of them. Every one of them suited a purpose. And we talked about that, what, what that means in our life. That you realize that everything that is, every way that you're mistreated, every, everything that happens negatively against you, God will waste none of them in fulfilling His purpose and desires in your life. So why do we, why do we hang on? Why when somebody mistreats us or we're treated in an unjust fashion, why do we hang on? Why is it hard for us to forgive? I think it's because we're not recognizing the sovereignty of God. If we recognize that God is at work in not just the warm, fuzzy moments in our life, but the cold, prickly ones too. God's at work in our interactions with other people. God's at work through all the circumstances of our life, not just some of them. You know, the Bible says He works all things together for our good. Then it should be easy for us to let go of those things. It should be easy for us to see them as the will of God even. And so it should then be easy for us to let go of that injustice, let go of that struggle within our own heart and life and to open up and to be more forgiving and more accepting. When we first got out of college and went into the ministry, went out to a youth ministry out in, out in Washington, and you know, all the time you're going to Bible college, you're just looking forward to that day. You're looking forward to the time when you're done with college, you've got the schooling behind you, and you're trained, and you get to go out and, and begin in the ministry, and you just look so forward to that. Earlier on, partway through college, we realized where we were going to go because we'd been back to Washington on a, on a vacation time and used that vacation time to serve God in a church out there and just to help with the youth group and stuff like that. And by the end of that summer, the pastor there had, had asked us, he said, look, when you're done with college, would come back here and be our youth pastor. We decided that that was God's will in our life at that time. And, and we, we followed that and we went out there and became engaged in the youth ministry. And I remember talking to the pastor that was there at that time. And he says, well, well, what are, your, what are your plans? He says, because I know that a lot of people do youth ministry for a while and, and then they'll want to go up to the pastorate and, and pastor a church. And, and I said, you know, not me. I said, I don't know what God has planned for the future. He said, I said, but you know, I would be completely satisfied if I am the youth pastor right here all my life. That was my goal. That was my desire. I, when I was learning about things in college, I wanted one really long ministry. That's what I wanted. I wanted a place that became home that you were a part of and that was a part of you. I wanted a, a ministry where you could be seen as steady and consistent. And I remember reading about a church that in 150 years it had three pastors. I thought, that is so awesome. When the average pastor is there three and a half years. And I thought that would be a great ministry. 
the long haul. Little to my knowledge, there were things already in play in the church that would have us there for about six months or maybe a little bit longer. I don't want to go into the details, but let's just say this, that there were some things that were happening already within the church, even when we got there, that we ended up having to lead the church through part of it in dealing with some of the tragedies that, that hit. And then afterwards, some people wanted me to step up into the pastorate and be the pastor there at that time after leading them through some tough times. And others absolutely did not want me in there. And it became clear that I couldn't just stay and be the youth pastor anymore. I was trying to be, but I was just, I was in the way. It was a bad situation. And so finally I decided, you know what, I just need to leave and then they can move on and find somebody. Well, you know, sometimes in a, in a church type of an atmosphere, people always have to try to find some biblical way to justify themselves. <laughs> and so <laughs> for some, that meant I was labeled as the, as the wolf in sheep's clothing. It was hurtful. It was hard. We ended up eventually, we decided to leave the area and come back to Minnesota. So I was back in Owatonna, and I was working construction again and helping with the youth ministry again. That's where I was on the facilities team with Dell's twin brother, Selmer, and found out about Little Fork and ended up up here. And the reason I bring all that up is because there was a lot of uh, some kind of hurtful things that I was carrying with me a little bit. And, you know, as we moved up here, and I didn't even, I don't even know if I realized I was carrying them with me. I knew they bothered me a little bit because I had people that I looked at as brothers and friends that kind of turned against me a little bit and did some kind of hurtful things. As we moved up here and got settled into this ministry and everything, I just found that if it wasn't for that, we would have probably never moved back to Otana. Wouldn't have been on that facilities team with Selmer that ended up in me with a connection to Dell, which ended up with me up here in Little Fork. And I love being here. Well, you know what? A really cool thing happened to me recently is we were, we were at, Lisa's dad's funeral, and we got reacquainted with some friends that we hadn't seen in many, many years. And they're great people, and we love them to death. And they're the kind of people that when you step into a conversation with them, it's like you just got done talking to them yesterday. That's how fresh the conversation is when you pick back up. Now, there's a lot of new things to talk about, grandkids and all that kind of stuff, but it's just like you haven't missed a beat in your friendship even though you haven't seen each other in 20 years. And anyway, at one point in the conversation... Uh, one of them mentioned some of the things that had happened in the past and the way that they were viewed and the way that we were viewed and the way some people were treated. And you know what was really cool for me is I just thought, you know how long it's been since I've even thought about that? That is so in the past for me. I don't feel any pain over that anymore. I don't feel any harshness in those events or what happened. That is so behind me. It's kind of like I think of Joseph naming his kids. God's caused me to forget. I forgot all, all about that. It's been so long since I've even thought about that. Why? Because of the sovereignty of God. They may have, there may have been people that meant some things for some hurt and some harshness in, in my life. But you know what? It's those very things that God used to direct me back to ding, ding, ding. And here I, and here I am and I love it. The sovereignty of God. If we recognize that even those things that people work against us, the injustices that we experience in our life, that God will use even those things to direct your paths and guide you in your life, then you can relax. You can forgive. You can get beyond those things. And that Joseph is seen to be very beyond it. He no longer has any ill will for his brothers. No more animosity. It all seems to be gone because he knows that God used it in his life. If we recognize the sovereignty of God in our life, it makes it so much easier to move on. It makes it so much easier to forgive. Let them be part of the past. Leave them where they belong. Not only is there sovereignty, but also what I would call sobriety. Sobriety in this 
the way that I'm using it now is the way it's often used in the Bible, not in any connection to alcohol. What it means is to have a, just a level-headed, a clear way of looking at things. And I think that this passage calls us to that kind of sobriety. Let me explain why. It has to do with a matter of perspective. Now, I remember once years ago I was watching a movie, and it was about boxing, and I'm watching the good guy, the guy that you want to win, win, and he's you know, winning the fight. And I'm enjoying the, I'm enjoying the movie. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, why am I enjoying this? And I realized that the reason I'm enjoying this is because I kind of have myself in the position of the guy that's winning. Because I thought, you know, if I was really there, I'd probably be the guy getting beat up, which would not be pleasurable. So I would not be enjoying this if I was putting myself in the position of the guy that's getting beat up. But I'm enjoying it because I'm putting myself in the position of the guy that's winning. Now, the reason I bring that up is I find I do that same thing with this story. I find myself identifying with Joseph. And as I read through and I see what his brothers did to him, and then I see the forgiveness that he had toward his brothers, and I think, wow, could I have that kind of forgiveness? Would I be as quick to forgive as Joseph was as quick to forgive? And this is the right way for me to be thinking. I should be thinking that way. But it's not the only way to see the story. You see, on one hand, Joseph is hes a type. He's kind of a picture of Christ. And just as Christ would be up there on that cross and say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's what Joseph is doing here. Joseph is the one being forgiving. And we're called to be like Christ. And so we should put ourselves in that position. Even though he's emulating Christ, we're supposed to emulate Christ. So we should look at that that way and say, just as Joseph was forgiving, I should be that forgiving. How is he that forgiving? How can I be that forgiving? But there's a second way to look at it. If I'm going to put myself in this story, I probably belong with the brothers. I know I belong with the brothers because they're the ones that need to be forgiven and I need to be forgiven. They're the ones that have sinned against their brother. I'm the one that has sinned against God. And so what we see is the the brothers coming before Joseph and he grants them this forgiveness. That's where we're at in the story. We're the ones coming before God and through his son Jesus Christ, he grants us the forgiveness And so you see, what that does is it puts a whole different light on it. Not only do we have the sovereignty of God for the reason that we forgive other people, but we have sobriety. We have a sober look at ourself, an assessment of ourself that says, look, I'm the one in need of forgiveness. Remember what I started with at the beginning? Patience is that thing that we admire in the person behind us. We're thankful for the people that are patient behind us, but we don't like the people being patient in front of us. That's the same way with us with forgiveness is that often we don't necessarily want to hand out forgiveness to somebody that has wronged us, but we're so thankful when we've wronged somebody else and they're so willing to forgive us. You see, the one should impact the other. When we recognize that we're the ones in need of the forgiveness, it should make it so much easier for us to forgive other people. Jesus would tell a story about that in Matthew chapter 18. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children, and all that he had and payment was to be made. His 10,000 talents in their day would be a, an amount that there's no way he could ever uh, overcome. It's a debt that he, there's no way he could climb out of. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So a mere fraction of what he owed. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see what Jesus' story points out is exactly what I'm pointing out in the life of Joseph. Those brothers came, they were ecstatic, I'm sure, that they were forgiven. They couldn't believe that Joseph was forgiving them of this great sin that they'd committed against him. And you know what? That's exactly how we should be. Uh, hard to believe how much God is willing to forgive us of, how excited we should be for what all that God has forgiven us for and welcomes us pure as snow into his presence. We're accepted in the beloved. If we've experienced that kind of forgiveness, how can we hold it against people, the, the injustices that they bring upon us or the hurt that they bring into our lives? The amount that we have been forgiven should motivate us to forgive others. And that's where we fit in the story of Joseph. We're that group of brothers that needed that forgiveness. And Jesus Christ is, is the one that provided that forgiveness for us. If that isn't great motivation to be forgiving like Joseph was, forgiving like Jesus is, then I don't know what will do it. But those two things together are some serious tools. Remember the lady that was caught... In adultery, the Bible says, and in John chapter 8, it says, They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I would love to know what he wrote. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. And you see the comment that Jesus made to him, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And starting with the older, they just quietly walked away dropped their stones, left them behind. You see, our understanding of our own need of forgiveness ought to compel us to be patient with others. It ought to put within our hearts a desire for forgiveness to take place, a hunger for other people to experience the same forgiveness that we've experienced. That's the kind of forgiveness we're supposed to live in on a daily level. In Ephesians chapter 4, he's telling the Christians how they ought to respond and relate with one another. And it says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
What is our forgiveness toward other people based on? The fact that God in His Son, Jesus Christ, has already forgiven us. You know, it makes it so much easier to be forgiving towards others, to be able to put those things behind you. If you have a clear view of the sovereignty of God, that He will not waste one of those experiences, but will use all of them for the benefit in your life. And also, we look at our life in a sobering way. When we recognize that we have fallen so short, we have sinned so horribly against this God that was so forgiving to us. We are the guy that was in debt billions, and God just wiped it off the slate. How then can we hold it against somebody else who owes us pennies?